Chapters 48 and 49 of Problems in American Democracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Allison Hester of Athens, Georgia. Problems in American Democracy by Times Williamson. Chapter 48. The State Courts. Part A. Sources of Law. 602. English Common Law. One important source of our system of jurisprudence is the English Common Law. This law is not found in the enactment of statutes, but consists of court decisions spread over several centuries. The Common Law has been defined as that rule of civil conduct which originated in the common wisdom and experience of society, and which in time became an established custom and has finally received judicial sanction and affirmance in the decisions of the courts of last resort. The common law began its development in early England and with the settlement of America was transplanted to this country. Though radically modified by American constitutional and statutory enactments, it still remains the basis of our legal system. 603. Equity. Common law tended to become so stereotyped and so inflexible that in some cases an application of the law worked an injustice. Very early in English history, this situation gave rise to a new form of jurisprudence called equity. Equity is that legal system which supplements common and statute law by aiming to secure justice where a strict application of law would work an injustice. Equity developed in England after the Norman Conquest and, like the common law, was transferred to this country in colonial times. A distinct set of chancery or equity courts was created to administer equity in early America, but at present equity is administered by the same judges that preside over the regular state law courts. Both equitable and legal relief may be secured in one suit. 604. Statutes. Another important source of law is the statutes enacted by the state legislature. Most state laws relate to the structure and functions of government, but statutory enactment is also employed to regulate a few branches of private law, including principally matters which affect the public at large as well as private individuals. Examples are laws relating to wills and succession to property, marriage and divorce, partnerships, and corporations. The scope of the statutes is widening, and during the last half century, several fields of the common law have been covered by statute. Criminal law, criminal procedure, and civil procedure have been codified in various states. Some states have attempted to codify the entire civil law, but experience has proved that this may easily render the law too rigid. 605. Other Sources of Law the state constitution, the federal constitution, and federal laws and treaties with foreign countries are other sources of state law. In summary, the various kinds of law which are enforceable in the state courts may be considered as forming a pyramid built upward by the following steps. English common law, equity, state statutes, 
the state constitution, federal statutes, treaties with foreign nations, and the federal constitution. Part B. Structure of the Courts. 606. The Justice of the Peace. State courts are arranged in a progressive series. At the bottom of this series is the Justice of the Peace, who exercises jurisdiction over petty offenses and over civil cases involving very small amounts. Generally, there is a Justice of the Peace in each township or other local district. In large cities, the civil and criminal jurisdiction of the Justice of the Peace is usually divided between two sets of courts. First, the municipal or city courts with a minor civil jurisdiction and second, the police or magistrates' courts with jurisdiction over petty criminal offenses. The police or magistrates' courts have the power to make preliminary investigations in case of felonies or serious misdemeanors. 607. The County Courts Above the justices of the peace, there are, in most states, a number of county courts exercising limited jurisdiction. These courts, sometimes called courts of common pleas or district courts, have jurisdiction over civil cases involving considerable sums as well as jurisdiction over most criminal offenses. In addition, these courts usually consider appeals from the judgments of justices of the peace. 608. Superior or Circuit Courts In many states, there is a superior circuit or district court immediately above the county courts, though in some states this tribunal takes the place of the county courts. The superior court has jurisdiction over civil cases involving unlimited sums as well as unlimited original jurisdiction over criminal matters. It may also try all cases over which the lower courts have no jurisdiction. 609. The Supreme Court at the head of the state judicial system, there is a court of last resort, known in various states by different names. It may be called the Court of Appeals, the Court of Errors and Appeals, or simply the Supreme Court. Practically all of the cases coming before this court are appealed from the lower courts. Ordinarily, it deals with points of law rather than of fact. 610. Special Court. In addition to the regular state courts, there are sometimes special tribunals for special purposes. Examples of such courts are the probate or surrogates courts for the settlement of estates of deceased persons, children's courts for the treatment of cases involving children, courts of domestic relations, and courts of claims for hearing claims against the state. 611. State Judges in almost all of the states, judges are chosen by popular vote, though in half a dozen states, the choice of these officials still lies with the legislature or with the governor or with both acting jointly. Judges of the higher state courts are generally chosen for a long period of time, even for life, while the judges of the lower courts are chosen for relatively short periods. Salaries vary from practically nothing but fee money for some justices of the peace to an average of $7,000 a year for justices of the Supreme Court. The qualifications imposed upon judges include a minimum age of 25 to 35 years and citizenship for a varying period of years, 
Another common requirement is residence within the state or even residence within the judicial district. For judges of the higher courts, it is the custom to demand membership in the legal profession. Judges may be removed by impeachment and, in a few states, by the use of the recall. 612. Other court officials. The district or prosecuting attorney is an important official. Generally, he is chosen by the voters of the county, though in some instances he is elected from larger areas. The district attorney represents the state in all criminal cases and conducts the prosecution. This officer conducts a preliminary investigation into crimes and determines whether or not a prosecution should be instituted. If the decision is in the affirmative, he presents the case to the grand jury. If the grand jury returns an indictment, that is, if it demands that the accused be held for trial, the prosecuting attorney conducts the prosecution at the ensuing trial. The clerk or recording officer is generally appointed by the court, though he may be elected by popular vote. The constable or sheriff is elected by popular vote. The clerk and the constable are charged with the execution of all orders, judgments, and decrees of the court. Part C. Powers and Procedure. 613. Relation of State to Federal Courts. The framework of American government includes a dual system of courts, the federal courts and the state courts. The jurisdiction of the federal courts is specifically defined by the federal constitution, while the state courts have a jurisdiction which is limited only by the prohibitions of the state and federal constitutions. The two systems of courts are independent in the exercise of their respective powers and have separate jurisdictions. In some cases, however, the state courts have a concurrent jurisdiction with the federal courts and a litigant has no choice of tribunals before which to bring suit. In most suits, the decision of the state Supreme Court is final, but cases involving federal law may be appealed for final decision to the Supreme Court of the United States. 614. Power to declare state statutes unconstitutional. Just as the federal courts are the final interpreters of all domestic law, so the state courts have the power to pass upon the constitutionality of statutes enacted either by the state legislature or by local lawmaking bodies. The state constitution is the fundamental law of the state, and it is the duty of the state courts to see that all state and local legislative acts conform to this fundamental law. 615. Power over executive officials. Through their power to pass upon the legality of executive acts, the state courts exercise some degree of control over executive officials. If a state governor were illegally to remove an official from office, for example, the courts could reinstate the latter. The state courts also have the power to issue writs of mandamus and injunction. The former may be used, under certain circumstances, to compel an executive officer to perform his duty. The latter writ may be used to prevent either state officials or private individuals from committing illegal acts. 616. Civil Jurisdiction The jurisdiction of the state courts is either civil or criminal. The purpose of civil law is to protect the rights of the individual and to redress his wrongs. The individual rights, which are the concern of civil law, 
fall under three heads. First, the right of personal security, including the right of protection against violence. Second, the right of personal liberty, including the rights set forth in the Bill of Rights of the State Constitution. Third, the rights of property, including the right to acquire and hold property, and the right to demand fulfillment of contracts made under state law. 617. Civil Procedure. If an individual believes that his rights have been violated, he, as plaintiff, is entitled to file a complaint with the proper court. The sheriff or constable then summons the defendant to appear in court, and the clerk of the court issues a summons or subpoena to all witnesses which either party to the suit desires to have testify. Generally, either party may demand a trial by jury. Both plaintiff and defendant are ordinarily represented by counsel, which present the different sides of the case to the judge and the jury. The judge decides what evidence may be properly presented to the jury. After the closing argument of the plaintiff's counsel, the judge instructs the jury on the legal points involved in the case. The jury then retire and attempt to reach a unanimous decision. If able so to agree, they return a verdict for either plaintiff or defendant, and after the verdict has been accepted by the court, judgment is rendered. If the jurors have been unable to come to a unanimous decision, the case is ordinarily tried with another jury, though in a few states a unanimous verdict in civil cases is not required. If the decision of the court is accepted as final, the judgment is enforced. On the other hand, the dissatisfied party may appeal the case to the next higher court on the ground that the verdict was contrary to the weight of evidence, or because of errors of law committed by the judge. Under certain circumstances, the judge who tries the case may be induced to grant a new trial. 618. Criminal Jurisdiction The purpose of criminal law is to punish those who have committed public wrongs, i.e. wrongs against the state or community. Crimes are of two types. First, felonies, including such grave offenses as murder, arson, burglary, and larceny. And second, misdemeanors, including such lesser offenses as bribery, knowingly receiving stolen goods, libel, assault, and battery, and disturbance of the peace. Usually, felonies are punished either by death or by a long prison sentence. Misdemeanors are ordinarily punished by fines or by imprisonment for a short term. 619. Criminal Procedure A criminal proceeding usually begins with the arrest of the accused person. Generally, though not always, arrest is in pursuance of a warrant. As soon after arrest as possible, the accused is brought before a magistrate for a preliminary examination. If the examining magistrate finds that there is probable cause for holding him for trial, the accused is committed to jail to await the trial. Unless the charge is murder, however, the defendant may be released on bail. If the charge is a serious one, indictment by the grand jury is the next step. If this jury decides that the evidence is insufficient, the charge is dismissed and the prisoner released. The grand jury meets in secret and hears only the charges against the accused. These are generally presented by the prosecuting attorney. After the defendant is indicted, the prisoner is brought into court and allowed to plead. If he pleads guilty, 
the judge may forthwith impose sentence and there is no trial. If the plea is not guilty, a trial is arranged, a jury of 12 men impaneled, and the trial begins. The case is opened by the prosecuting attorney, since it is the duty of the state to assume the defendant innocent until he is proved guilty. The prosecuting attorney presents his witnesses, each of which the defendant's attorney may cross-examine, and in turn allows the defendant's attorney to present the defense. The prisoner is not questioned at any stage in the trial, unless he is willing to take the stand as a witness on his own behalf. After the prosecuting attorney and the defendant's counsel have completed their case, the judge sums up the evidence brought out by each side and instructs the jury as to the law involved. The jury then retire and attempt to reach a verdict. Generally, such a verdict must be unanimous, and if this cannot be secured, the jury is dismissed and the case is held for retrial. If the verdict is not guilty, the prisoner is discharged. If he is found guilty, sentence is imposed by the court, either immediately or at some future date. End of chapter 48. Chapter 49. Municipal Government. Part A. Development of the American Municipality. 620. Rapid Growth of American Cities. A striking feature of American life is the rapidity with which our cities have grown. At the time of Washington's first inauguration, the United States were so predominantly rural that only about one-thirtieth of our population was found in the cities. With the progress of the Industrial Revolution came an unprecedented development of transportation and the factory system. More and more people made their homes in the cities until, in 1890, approximately a third of the people of the United States were living in cities. According to the census of 1920, more than half of our population is concentrated in towns and cities. 621. The American City Before the Revolution New York, now the largest American city, is also the oldest, having received its charter in 1686. Between that date and the outbreak of the Revolution, 19 other municipalities received charters. The colonial cities modeled their organization after the English borough. Practically all authority was vested in a council, consisting of a mayor, recorder, alderman, and councilman acting as a single body. The mayor was either appointed by the governor or elected by the council. The chief duty of the mayor was to preside over the council and execute its ordinances. 622. The American City, 1775 to 1825. Several important changes in the character of the American city took place in the half century which followed the Declaration of Independence. The power to grant charters to cities was transferred from the governor to the state legislature. This was the natural outcome of an increasing suspicion of the executive authority and a corresponding increase of faith in the state legislature. Before the end of this period, the city came definitely under the control of the state legislature. In the absence of constitutional restrictions, the legislature has continued to exercise an almost dictatorial control over the cities within its borders. Also typical of this period was the subordination of city affairs to state and national politics. 623. The American City, 1825-1850. to 1850. 
During this period, a number of new cities sprang into prominence. Immigration was increasing, and the industrialization of the country was crowding the population into larger and larger units. New York, Boston, St. Louis, and other cities adopted the two-chambered council plan. The passion for democratic control swept away the property qualifications prescribed by some of the early city charters and practically attained universal manhood suffrage. The demand for popular control likewise led to the present practice of choosing the mayor by popular vote, the older methods of state appointment or council election being discarded. 624. The American City, 1850 to 1875. Many pressing municipal problems appeared in this period. The functions of the American city became more numerous and more complex. Police and fire systems were installed. Waterworks, sewer systems, and city parks were provided. Education and charitable relief were developed. Under the stress of administering these additional functions, cities applied more and more frequently to the state legislature for special legislation granting them additional powers. State legislatures tended to pass such special acts freely, with the result that corrupt and pernicious legislation became common in many states. Special interests engaged in lobbying, bribery, and log-rolling to secure special favors from legislatures. Public service corporations often secured valuable franchises on terms that did not adequately protect the public interest. 625 municipal reform. The period since 1875, and especially since 1900, has been marked by a strong tendency to reform municipal government. The abuse of power by the city council in many instances forfeited the respect with which the public had formerly regarded that body. The power to appoint various city officials was transferred from the council to the voters, and many of the functions formerly exercised by the council were entrusted to newly created municipal boards. In about half of the states, constitutional provisions now forbid the legislature to pass special acts considering municipalities. In other states, the Constitution enumerates a large number of subjects with regard to which the legislature cannot enact special legislation. In some states, the cities of the state are classified into two or more groups, according to population. The legislature is compelled to designate the group or groups to which statutes are to apply. In about a dozen states, certain types of cities are allowed to frame and amend their own charters, provided that such acts are not inconsistent with the Constitution and statutes of the state. Municipal civil service reform is of increasing importance, more than 200 American cities having sanctioned it in some form. As applied to municipal affairs, the merit system includes a municipal commission appointed by the mayor. A system of competitive examinations designed to test character and capacity, a plan for requiring the appointing officer in each department of city government to select his subordinates from an eligible list, a method of removing officials, and sometimes a system of pensioning employees who have grown old in the service. The movement for popular control has been closely associated with municipal development. The tendency to shorten the ballot, 
the holding of municipal elections at different times than state and national elections, and the concentration of administrative officers under a responsible appointing head are steps in this direction. In many states, the direct primary has been intimately associated with municipal development. The initiative, referendum, and recall have been adopted in a large number of cities, especially where the mayor-council plan has been abandoned for the commission form of government. Part B. Municipal Organization. 626. The Three Types of City Government. The three types of city government in the United States are the mayor-council plan, the commission plan, and the city manager plan. Footnote. For a description of the commission and city manager plans of city government, see chapter 36. End of footnote. The commission plan is a new form of city government which has been designed to overcome the defects of the old mayor-council plan, while the city manager plan is a modification of the commission plan. Of recent years, both the commission plan and the city manager plan have spread rapidly, but it is still true that few American cities of any appreciable size have adopted either of these two plans. The old mayor-council plan prevails in most American cities, and for this reason, the remainder of this chapter will be devoted to a description of this form of government. 627. The City Council. Organization. Usually, the city council is a single-chambered body, though some of the larger cities have, from time to time, experimented with a double-chambered council. In some cities, councilmen are chosen on a general ticket, but in most cases, the council consists of one member from each ward or district into which the city is divided. Councilmen must be voters in the city in which they serve, and by custom they are generally required to be residents of the ward from which they are chosen. The terms of councilmen vary from one to four years, two years being the average term. In the smaller cities, councilmen are usually unpaid, but in the larger municipalities they receive a stated salary. 628. The City Council. Powers. The typical American city is subservient to the state legislature, the powers of city government being enumerated in a charter received from the legislature. These enumerated powers have been rather narrowly interpreted by the courts. The council enjoys a measure of police power, which it may invoke to protect the health and to further the well-being of the city's inhabitants. The exercise of this police power, however, must not conflict with state law. The council has the power to levy taxes to defray expenses incurred in performing municipal functions. State constitutions and legislatures limit this power rather narrowly, however. Subject to a similar limitation is the council's power to raise money through the issue of bonds. City councils may act as the agents of the state government in matters affecting education and charitable relief. 629. The City Council. Procedure. The City Council meets periodically, generally weekly or bi-weekly. It determines its own rules of procedure and keeps a journal. The committee system is used for the dispatch of business. Ordinances may be proposed by any member of the Council. After being introduced, ordinances are read by title and are referred to the proper committee. 
a second and third reading at subsequent meetings are required. If the ordinance is approved by a majority of the council, it is signed by the presiding officer and sent to the mayor. In many cities, the mayor may veto any ordinance passed by the council. In case of a veto, the measure becomes law only if passed by a two-thirds, in some cities, three-fourths or four-fifths, vote of the council. In those cities where the mayor has no veto power, the ordinance goes into effect immediately upon being passed by the council. 630. The Mayor In all cities where the mayor-council plan of government prevails, the chief executive officer is the mayor or chief magistrate. This officer is usually elected by popular vote for a term varying from one to four years. Usually the term is two years, though in New England a one-year term is more common. The mayor is paid a salary which ranges from a few hundred dollars in the smaller cities to several thousands of dollars in a number of the larger municipalities. 631. The Mayor and the Council it is the duty of the mayor to communicate at least once a year to the city council a general statement of the administration and financial condition of the city. The mayor may also recommend to the city council, in his annual message or otherwise, the passage of ordinances which he considers needful. In smaller cities and in a few of the larger municipalities, the mayor presides over the council and has a casting vote in case of a tie but in most of the larger cities, he is not a member of the council. In most cities, he has the veto power. In many of the more recent city charters, the mayor is given the power to veto separate items in an appropriation bill while approving the remainder of the measure, just as some governors may veto separate items in appropriations bills enacted by the state legislature. 632. 632. Administrative Duties of the Mayor The mayor stands at the head of the city administration, but the extent of his control varies from city to city. In the last half century, the decline in popular favor of the city council has been accompanied by a growing tendency to enlarge the administrative powers of the mayor. In many of the smaller cities, the mayor is still little more than a presiding officer of the council. In such cities, subordinate executive officials are usually chosen by popular vote or are appointed by the council. In other cities, the mayor may appoint the chief administrative officials subject to the consent of the council. In still other cities, including many of the larger municipalities, the mayor may both appoint and remove the heads of the executive departments without interference on the part of the council. 633 other administrative officials. Such highly complex and important matters as health, education, parks, charities, police, fire protection, and public works are the concern of the numerous administrative officials of the city. Administrative work is carried on by two methods. First, the board system, in which such concerns as schools, public health, and police are managed by boards composed of members of the city council and second, single commissioners who are more or less under the control of the mayor. The board system has proved less efficient than the single commissioner plan, and accordingly there is a tendency to abandon the former for the latter plan. End of chapter 49